0: Welcome to The Real Developer Podcast, where we get into some real conversations about UK land and development with real SME developers, brought to you by Trusted Land. In this week's episode, myself and Martin Pollock from Hallcroft Finance met with Philip Chadder from three-time accredited real developer Eastwood. We hear how Philip uses extensive development experience spanning over 30 years to launch Eastwood with business partner Joshua Prince back in 2016 and has become one of the home county's strongest entrants in the planning, game and development space. We talked to Philip about the 120 million pound Uncom purchase. We look at the importance of focusing on willing sellers when you're in land trading, and why does you have to be a little bit insane to be a good developer? Don't forget, as always, you can go to trusttheland.co.uk to download the quarterly Real Developer Index to find track record information and key requirements from experienced SME developers. Stay tuned to the end of the episode, where my guest co-host for this week, Martin Pollock from Hallcroft Finance, gives us a timely, interesting insight from the world of debt and equity. Now let's get into this week's episode. And now to introduce your host, Alex Harrington-Griffin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Real Developer Podcast. My name is Alex Harrington-Griffin. I'm the CEO of Trusted Land. And today, I have got two awesome guests. The first one is my guest co-host for today's session, Martin Pollock from the finance panel firm, Hallcroft Finance. Hello, Martin.
1: Hi, Alex. How are you? Uh, I think rocking is the term I'd use today. So very good. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Just spent the last uh, week up in my Edinburgh office working with developers and investors up there. It's really interesting to get a perspective on the Scottish market. So a little bit tired after a long week of meetings, but excited to be on the podcast with you. I don't know if it's more tiring
0: sort of having the break and going traveling or being at home with a baby. So uh, I'm sure you're battling through both. (laughs) Indeed. So we've got a guest today. This is a three-time accredited real developer. So we're very, very pleased to have convinced to come and join us today. It's Philip Chatter from Eastwood, which is, as I've said, shared with the audience beforehand, they've got a long history, a lot of varied approach to land buying and development, and a lot of background skills. So I'm going to hand over to Philip, and I really want Philip to, to jump in and tell some of the story that which we don't know. We collect all the factual information, but Philip, you know, you've got the story behind the firm. Can you jump in and tell our audience a bit about the the company, about yourself and how it kicked off?
2: Sure, sure. Thanks, guys, for inviting me first. I uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, so Eastwood, what can I say? It's basically, it was formed about six years ago with uh, myself and my partner, Josh. We've both been in the property game for probably a bit, bit too long. I've been in property and in planning almost 35 years, and both from working in the public sector and also in the private sector. The company itself, though, was I said, established six years ago with me and Josh. I've known Josh for the best end of 15 years. Um, previous to setting up the company, I was working in the corporate world working for the likes of Barclay Homes and for Red Row. And I decided to kind of like a jump ship, and start doing development and planning myself, worked as a consultant for a couple of years. And then, like I said, approximately six, seven years ago, caught up with Josh again. Josh would set up his own company, uh, Eucalyptus. Um, we had differing skill sets, but we worked together very well. And there was chemistry. So we decided to set up Eastwood. And it's, you know, for the last six years, it's been really productive. We've had many successes, but it's growing. So we're very positive about the whole structure.
0: Okay. I just want to ask a quick question, Philip, because you've obviously taken what is not often the most common route into SME. And I say, you know, there's a lot that do take this route. You've worked for the likes of Barclay and Redrow. What was the biggest sort of awakening coming from those larger companies with lots of infrastructure around you to starting up your own development business?
2: To be fair, Alex, said, I worked for Barclay probably about 20 years ago and more recently with Red Road. Um, The corporate structure is great, don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic learning curve. I enjoyed it. You learn so much. You're exposed to the market, exposed to property professionals, some of the most higher caliber property professionals, and I enjoyed it. But fundamentally, you are a small cog. Um, I don't care what the organization is. You are a cog in a big organization. And it can get a bit frustrating. And that's what I found there. I ended my term with Redrow, not that, to say anything disrespectful. Redrow is a fantastic company. Mm-hmm. It's just that I worked for other individuals previously as a consultant. And I felt that my role, my skill set was more aligned to looking at more of a kind of individual perspective as opposed to more of a corporate structure. Working alongside Josh enabled me to do that, concentrate on the things that were I thought was my skill set. Which was planning and land, as opposed to management. I think when you're working in the corporate structure and you get to a certain hierarchy, you're more of a manager than a hands-on, and that's the one thing which I loved about the industry—about doing deals, finding sites, progressing planning, um, rather than man management, which was not my great skill set, should we say?
1: Okay, I understand that. That's fair enough. Phil, that's uh, really interesting. Can you tell us about two of the, your favourite deals you've recently been involved with?
2: Well, one of the deals I did at Red Road, for example, before I departed, was we acquired the Peel Centre. That's the, the Metropolitan okay. Training Centre in Colindale. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was one of the largest, it was the largest at the time, but still is actually, the largest unconditional deal Red Road was involved in. We acquired that through the GLA panel. And the good thing about that deal is, which is it's something which we learned from. You know, my time at Barclay Homes, was about adding value. So we acquired that site. It was about circa 50 acres, acquired it unconditionally for about $120 million on the basis of securing roughly 2,500 units on the assumption that we always knew we'd basically add value through the planning process. And I think we eventually, slightly after the time I left, of course, but we eventually got consent for over 4,500 units on that same site. That's one of the skills which I think I learned through working for Barclay Homes was buying these kind of regenerational sites and you basically, through a process of the planning process and also over a period of time, you add value through placemaking by enhancing the development potential of those sites. And I think It's similar to the other project I was involved in. When I left Red Row, I was acting as a consultant where we basically acquired... West Ham football ground, the old bowling football ground in Upton Park. Mm-hmm. So that was acquired through a consortium. We acquired it unconditionally again, expecting to achieve, I don't know, circa 600 units. We managed to achieve just over 850. And because of the nature of the planning, the, kind of the value we attached, managed to achieve the nature of the scheme, we enhanced the, the value considerably. And whilst we, our initial intention was to build the scheme out, with the JV partners, which were Galliard and O'Shea and V Fund, we got such an attractive offer from Barrett's, we decided to sell. That was before we actually even completed on the site. So for me, the whole kind of process has been about adding value, looking at potential of those development sites, looking at it from a different angle. Not, I think my planning background, I've worked for local government for about 13 years prior to joining Barclay was... You know i've worked on both sides of defense i understand the planning process i understand how working with the kind of planners and local stakeholders and politicians you can really enhance and add value to many of these development sites rather than taking a confrontational approach
0: and that kind of ties into my next question philip as well which obviously you know we've seen it through eastwood's approach i've obviously spent some good time with your business partner joshua it's been a real pleasure to get to know as well and we've obviously been working on opportunities with you guys more recently, so I've got to know your approach as well. What would you say you feel? You know, talking about it from, a, let's say, an investor perspective. You know, what is Eastwood's sort of secret sauce? What gives you guys something different? And obviously, I know your experience is significant, but what's your sort of personal approach? I mean, let's say from you as an individual, that you think makes Eastwood a real sort of powerful buyer.
2: I think we go into approach of like working with. Our partners. So, whether it's the landowner, in terms of enhancing the value, getting the best return for the landowner, or through the planning process, working with the planners, I think it's more of a collaborative approach to life. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I know we, a lot of developers will pay lip service to stakeholders, local stakeholders, but it's a different approach we've adopted. Because one thing I've realised in the time I'm doing both planning and property is that, you know, that club collaborative approach to development you do manage not just to add value and, and get the best re, um, maximize the development potential of certain sites but you get the best schemes you know we can't be arrogant enough in the, in the property sector to feel that we've got all the right answers mm-hmm. you know working with local stakeholders they know the local environment working with local politicians they know the aspirations of you know their community and working alongside those people i think you can both you know, we can make maximise our returns. And let's be honest with you, that's what our industry is about. It's about making a fair and reasonable return. Also provide, you know, valuable, quality, qualitative spaces where people can live, work and enjoy. I think we have a responsibility as a developer to give back. And I think that's that's what we, as you know, from an Eastwood perspective, that's what we seek to achieve.
0: I think that's a very solid answer. I think one you can definitely hang your hat on. So uh, good on you. No, I appreciate that. So we always take the opportunity halfway through the podcast just to quickly go over the requirements of the our interviewees. So for Eastwood at the moment, we're in Q2 as we record this. And as Trusted Lamb, we collect the quarterly requirements of all of our approved real developers and then publish these in the quarterly requirements index. So one of the things I would probably say is you've probably got one of the more broader sort of brackets of types of sites you'll be able to take on. But I think credit to you hearing about your background, knowing Joshua's background as well. I think it's quite clear that you're one of the firms that's very well set up to be able to take these sites on. So in terms of areas, we've got South Greater London, North Greater London, Essex, Hertfordshire, Berkshire, East Sussex, Surrey, and Kent. Sites up to about £50 million in value. And anywhere really approaching sites between sort of 50 to 1,000 units. I know we have discussed slightly smaller sites where there's potentially planning uplift with you with joshua beforehand or you are very happy to take on the strategic sites that is that sort of you know three to seven year play as well ideally looking areas between 400 and a thousand pound per square foot for resales and very happy to look at all types of residential as well as student and care home as well and of course where your skill set comes in is sites without planning but you'd look at sites without line or lapsed or failed planning does that sort of cover the core focus potentially
2: yeah it does it does alex it covers what our, our skill set it is all about. It's basically adding value through the planning process. So happy, you know, to look at sites uh, both with and without planning. You know, there is those opportunities with sites with planning which we can we configure, we assess. So yes, absolutely spot on.
0: Okay. So I'm going to ask, because you've got the, the planning awareness, and maybe this puts a little bit more pressure on you to sort of think from a planning perspective, but we know through Developers Boardroom, through talking to people like Martin and their clients as well, that the planning system is a real bugbear at the moment for so many SME developers, well, all house builders and developers. What's your kind of current approach to battling that, the delays, the lack of resource, the under-resource that planning you know, divisions are suffering from? How are you looking to overcome these as Eastwood?
2: Our approach, like I said originally, was it's more of a collaborative approach. I think we have to listen. Now, I, like I said, like I've alluded to, I've worked in the public sector. My wife works in the public sector in the planning department. And I know we always go back and say, well, you know, it's down to the planners. I think you've got to understand that, the, you know, planning over a period of the last, you know, 30 years has got more complex. You know, are the responsibilities of the developer rightly or wrongly have increased our requirements to engage has been considerably increased as well so Mm -hmm. and i think that's a positive but i think what we need to do we from a eastwood perspective do a lot of due diligence on our planning approach in terms of yes we do take on those complex sites but we work with a great team we choose the right architects the right planning consultants political lobbyists to reflect that particular location. We're not arrogant to believe enough that, you know, we've got all the right answers. We employ the best people for those particular types of development opportunities. And it's working as a team. Um, Our ideal is to engage with both the local authorities, the local stakeholders as early as possible and encourage them to be part of our journey through that planning process.
0: Do you have quite a broad team then that you work with in terms of the professionals that look at the planning with you? Because obviously, you know, you you recognize the important thing, something I believe in, and I know a lot of the developers do as well, that you can't just pick up and take the exact same team always to a new site, a new location, a new product. Do you have quite a broad range of, of professionals you do work with? Yes,
2: we do. You know, I I say that now, but we've got one kind of core team which work on a number of our sites, Mm -hmm. which is beneficial for us from from a management and a cost perspective. But that said, you know, depending on the location, we'll look at the right architects for the right kind of development, for the right product. So, yes, I think I've been fortunate enough that I've worked in the industry for like over 30 years. So I've got a wealth of kind of knowledge and also contacts in various fields which I could tap into yeah. and no two development sites are the same therefore no two development teams should be the same they should be reflective of the location and those particular you know, characteristics of that particular site
0: I like that quote a lot
1: no two development sites are the same so no two development teams should be the same I like that a lot that is a same bite right there that's for sure definitely I can ask about from the funding side of things and clearly you've got a sophisticated business with a really strong track record when do you start thinking about the funding process? Because there must be a lot of plates spinning relative to the value you're adding through planning, and that can be through either acquisition or option, I'm sure. So when do you start thinking about funding? And with the schemes that you've delivered, how have you structured your funding?
2: Interesting, Marty. We never stop thinking about the funding. You know, We've been fortunate enough that we've worked with a number of you know, quality developers in the past. I've worked as a planning consultant for various different type of companies, contractors. I've had a good relationship with Galliard Homes, with O'Shea. We've got a very good relationship with the V Fund. So we've been able to tap into those sources of private equity. That said, we've been long in the tooth, so we've also got our own personal private equity, which we put into projects. So the deals we've done to date, you know, the unconditional purchases um, been funded through joint ventures between Eastwood and the V Fund. A lot of the subject of planning deals we've secured and the options we've secured, we've done financially from our own resources. That said, we're currently in negotiations with a corporate fund and hopefully terms should be agreed in the next few weeks and we'll be making a, a statement. On that shortly so that will provide us a kind of a strategic partner going forward that doesn't prevent us still working with our existing partners it just adds another string to our bow when it comes to finance which is probably from our perspective the most difficult part of the kind of the development of property kind of aspect for us
1: do you find any part of uh, the funding challenging and do you think there's anything that you would suggest that you do that makes it easier It's difficult
2: because what we're looking to do is at the most riskiest end of the development process, we're taking on planning risk. And it's the one part of the kind of property sector which, you know, institutional money have always tried to avoid because it's the riskiest part of the business. But at the same time, it can be the most rewarding part of the business. And we've seen that. And I've shown that in terms of the projects we've been involved in. And because of that track record, I think that gives a lot of confidence and faith, especially for you know, our equity partners, to invest in eastwood and hopefully, because of that, that's enabled you know more of a, say, a corporate fund manager to look at us, seen our you know assess our track record, and the fact that we're also willing to invest you know on a parry pursue basis gives them the comfort that we do understand what we're doing we are taking considerable risk. But from the experience to date, we've succeeded.
0: Philip, I want to take the opportunity to do so or to say something that I wanted to say for a while, which is let's get real for a minute. So one of the sort of the questions we have, and we did a lot of work last year in talking to the land community and bringing advice back into developers, remind them of some of the core things that they want to see. We're changing it around. And we want to understand from your perspective, you know, really speaking, What would you like to offer to the land community? So land agents, land sorters, land sources, any representatives in terms of how to bring an opportunity to Eastwood that you actually, you know, you like, you get excited about and that you can jump onto straight away?
2: The idea is about information, as much information as you can, more information we can receive, you know, and it's it's not the flowery stuff, but the actual information enables us to be more aggressive or... Should we say, more confident when we bid. And also, let's be honest with you, like you said, let's talk frankly, what we also need, ideally need, is an idea of strike price. Now, we can assess hundreds of sites and make hundreds of offers, but the bottom line is it'd make life a lot easier that if somebody said, well, Phil, this is the opportunity, they're looking for circa X million or whatever. Mm. I can assess that development opportunity within minutes. We don't have to waste a lot of time and what you get is a definitive answer, a definitive yes or no. And let's be honest with you, in the property industry, you know, a yes or no is far better, or should we say a no is far better than a maybe. It's all about, you know, moving things forward. And I know from talking to agents and I've a lot of my friends have agents, I've got a relationship with the vast majority of these guys, is they want to send us opportunities, but they want quick and early responses. And to do that, I think if we got an idea of what aspirations of the vendors and their realistic aspirations that we can deliver on those opportunities much quicker as opposed to us spending you know days in terms of getting architects to prepare schemes viabilities and so forth and most of that time is wasted so from my perspective if an agent was to come to me or a landowner was to come to me i think what would be key on day one would be some sort of as notional aspirational value they attach to their property to their land so we can be straight and kind of cut through the kind of you know the um, the fluff
0: you can be real with them <laughs> yeah exactly well i think it's a two-way street that you know i think even as a land platform's perspective we work with a lot of land representatives, a lot of land sources and you're right you know we always want to try and get a response where does someone sit where are they in the process are they interested but if we and our land representatives don't give you the information to work on, then ultimately, I've sat in that land and your homes department beforehand and sort of sent the basics across in my early career. And yeah, you realize that you're asking someone to make a decision or to give a definitive response based on very little of the go-off. So they've got to go off and do their own research. So it is that two-way street and making sure that, you know, you guys can do what you want to do, which is to be a good, responsive, potential buyer. But we've got to meet you where you're at in terms of giving the info you need to, to make that call
2: also you know what's key is that you know we have got willing sellers you got, i've got so many you know, opportunities where somebody's come up to me and said, look we've got these opportunities we need to hit a strike price of x and you do all the work and you put full of proposals and then when you sit around the table with the vendor then you know and i've got enough experience to realize this that these are not willing sellers you know they've They've gone through the process more just to kind of from a valuation perspective as opposed to you know being willing to sell the opportunity or they use you as a kind of stalking horse yeah. to kind of and it's those which are probably the most frustrating because you spend kind of situations because you spend so much time and effort putting forward proposals and it's a waste of time
0: let me ask you just a very brief question what would you think is a I appreciate it's a, it's a discussion. It's a you yes, know, it's all the signals, both verbal and non-verbal. But you know, is there a question that you can ask to bring that out of a potential seller to find out? You know, where really are they in this process?
2: I wish I knew, Alex. I really do.
0: Just <laughs> not when you do find it,
2: it's it's just like us, though. i, I must admit, it is a two-way process because as a developer a you're never going to put your best foot forward. You always leave some sort of you know there's always some sort of give in terms of the offers we make because we always know that there's always going to be room to negotiate. You know, I don't think I've ever made an offer on any particular site on day one, well, I may have actually, but most of the times is that that offer is either changed or is altered and it tends to go one way, which is up.
1: Okay, okay, good to know. Martin? Yeah, but finally from me, Philip, what, what do you reckon it takes to be a, qualified good professional developer what are the characteristics that you hold dear that separates you guys from the others
2: you've got to be insane basically to do what we do <laughs>
1: <laughs> good answer.
2: no but let's be honest with you it's you know it's it's a crazy job you know it's like you've got to be the jack of all trades it's like you know from a land perspective and I always see this you know if you look at some of the best kind of managers in the corporate industry, in the property industry. They all come from a kind of land background, because from the land background, you need to understand all the complexities of development. You need to be you know, understanding not just of land, but of planning. You need to understand a little bit about sales. You need to understand finance. You need to understand cash flow. You need to understand return on capital, you know, IORs. You need to understand construction costs, timing, phasing. So I think there's not one particular skill. I think what is essential in terms of a developer, especially in the land sector, is you need to be sociable. You need to get on with people because yeah. whether it's with a landowner or with a local authority planner, whether it's with a you know a local interest group you're dealing with, whoever, you've got to be able to listen. You've got to be able to communicate. And you've got to be well work- with other people.
0: Great answer. Gents, that's all that we have time for today. Philip, we really appreciate you coming to share with us today some really solid advice and perspective in there as well. So thank you for taking that time as well. And will you come back in a few weeks' time in any which way to tell us about your big news?
2: It definitely, so for Josh will be one of us, definitely. Good. And guys, look, thanks for the opportunity.
1: Good man, thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys, it's Martin Pollock, co-founder of Hallcore Finance, just giving you a financial insight at the end of your podcast. One of the things that we're talking to our clients a lot about right now is sustainability. And our developer clients are looking to deliver more eco-friendly housing schemes while investors are searching for ever more sustainable investments to appease their stakeholders. The government have also waded into this conversation recently by offering the Greener Loan Scheme. And there's effectively two ways that we can see this benefiting our clients. One way is by reducing their carbon footprint. And that is by reducing the amount of embodied carbon emitted during the construction phase of their housing schemes. And the second way is by delivering a more impressive EPC rating above a level B. If our clients can reduce their carbon footprint, they can get a rebate from the government or investment funds for effectively proving they've reduced that carbon footprint. If they can deliver a more impressive EPC rating, they can benefit from either reduced exit fees from challenger banks or a reduction in annual interest rates from investment funds. The question though remains, in reducing your carbon footprint or reducing your EPC rating, what cost of materials and cost of labour is that for your appraisal? Something we're we're exploring and yet to understand.
0: It's Alex Harrington Griffin again. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Real Developer Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, if you want to head to trustedland.co.uk or realdeveloper.co.uk, you can download the quarterly requirements index from dozens of experienced SME firms. And of course, at any point, if you want to discuss with Trusted Land, matching your off-market site to the exact requirements of experienced credited developers, drop an email to land at trustedland.co.uk. Remember, if you're going to deal in land and development, keep it real.